0: (laughs) You were saying?
1: Welcome to episode 98 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Darren, who probably made a better New Year's resolution than I did. My resolution was to do better intros for this podcast, but as you can see, I'm a total train wreck as usual.
0: Wow, another job, another (laughs) job done. Fantastic job. How are you, Mary? Happy New Year. Happy Happy New Year. Another, another trip around the sun, or as you call it, another trip around the IPA bar. Okay. So we're good. How are you? What's going on?
1: Oh, well, I'm good. So happy 2023 to you and to all of our listeners as well. It's good to be back recording again. First episode of 2023. It's episode 98.
0: I know. It's crazy. We are two away
1: from the the 100.
0: Wow. The math skills still astound. They do. They really, really oh, do. I think I've
1: really improved in the last, like, well, we're going into our third year of this. I think I've really improved since that episode two when you, you know, through that really hard math problem at me math is hard math is hard
0: math is definitely hard anyway so we've had a great night so far this is that this would do the double duty today we had, earlier tonight we had our fantastic book club with the great terry alfer the writer who um uh his fantastic book in the houses of their dead we talked about we had a bunch of people on i hope a lot of people had appreciated and enjoyed that because i'm not gonna lie to you, mary love me talking about some booth and some lincoln yes. assassination it was do.
1: it was really really good um you had really good questions our listeners um that were on had really great questions too it was a great group of people um and our next book club meeting is going to be on february the 22nd six o'clock eastern via zoom and we are going to be talking with um alexander rose is going to be talking Mm -hmm. to us um and joining us to talk about his book the lion and the fox which is about spies um in liverpool england and the confederate navy
0: so that's, yeah, that's cool. gonna be pretty neat that's gonna be pretty neat he's a Revolutionary war guy he's a jack of all trades that book is absolutely fantastic so he'll be doing double duty for us we'll be doing our usual uh episode with him and then we're gonna be doing the book club to your point point. and so um people are gonna really appreciate we haven't done a lot of navy uh, a lot of people like the navy I, yeah, our, we've been ours, we've we? been asked
1: to do uh navy stuff pretty much since we started this and we've always said yes yes we're gonna do navy soon and we've touched on them in a few different episodes like about vicksburg um, and we touched on them in some episodes last year, but never done a really in-depth look at the Civil War nope. Navy. And it's it's kind of like the Trans-Mississippi Theater. It kind of gets left behind with everything. It, it,
0: I think it does. And we're going to do a little Navy. We're going to do a little spies, some intrigue. And this is going to be a lot of fun. So we are turning the page. We are moving on to a new year. But since I'm going to wait around all day, I'm going to I was ask just about you, to what ask what you, drinking? what are you drinking? Oh, okay, fine. I'm drinking. It is called... Um, what is this called? It's called Secret Bear Hug, which is fantastic. That's exactly what you want to have. It's from uh, from Coosa Island, I believe, in Chicago. So I'm drinking it out of my Old Canada mug that nice. some knucklehead got me not too long ago. So what about yourself? What are you drinking?
1: I am drinking Just a Kitten by Exhibit A Brewing, which is from Framingham here in Massachusetts. And I'm drinking it out of my William Sherman. You can't see it because... If you put a background on Zoom, you can't see the mug, um, but it's got oh. Sherman on it and it says "Dime Ad" on it because I'm
0: going to be talking about Sherman tonight in this episode. Okay. Well, some things never change, as they say. Well, it's New Year. Everyone has their resolutions, Mary. So we're going to talk a little about that. The month of January that we're in is traditionally one. The, the gyms are full. The line of the DQs are short. <laughs> you know, the, the, the DQ is the place
1: that will break your
0: resolution. I will. Seltzer water has replaced beer this month. A lot of people do dry. January, yes. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, we've been and we've been doing a lot of battle stuff lately. Um, so we figure maybe it's kind of fun to take a little bit of a break from that carnage and casualty numbers, those numbers you so love to report and maybe do something a little more lighthearted. So maybe do some New Year's resolutions of some of our a handful of our Civil War personalities. So, you know, we you know, we've said many times now that you know people are people. Uh, Whether they lived in the 19th century or the 21st century, Um, and just like you, Mary, they're all flawed. There's no doubt about that. And so, so maybe, just maybe, if we had a chance to do a New Year's resolution, maybe some of them might want to change their ways. So uh, we thought we'd have a little fun with this. We'll talk about a few people. Yeah, we've got some ideas around at the end. So we've got
1: three people that we're going to talk about. really in depth. So we'll probably spend, um, you know, 10, 15 minutes talking about each of them. And then we're just going to kind yeah. of have like a, I don't know, our usual discussion about just some other generals that some of the resolutions they might have made, um, yeah, as well, just see, see, to wrap got things got up at the end.
0: Whole thing all figured out anyway. So, um, I would say ladies first, but I, I will start this because, um, cause I was told to lose yes. resolutions. things never change. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Okay, well, fine. But the <laughs> first person the first, first person I want to talk about is a man they call the Tarnished Cavalier, Mary. And this, of course, is the infamous Major General Earl Van Dorn. Or EVD. We talk, about, we talk about him off and on, but we're going to have some fun with him. We'll old EVD here. You know, and talk about a little background and maybe some things that he might have tried to do differently. And I have a good idea what he probably wanted differently, but I digress. Earl Van Dorn, he's born on September 17, 1820, in the town of... Um, in Port Gibson, Mississippi, the town famously U.S. grants said the town was too pretty to burn. That's what he said about <laughs> it. He was born. Uh, his father was a lawyer and a judge named Peter Aaron Van Dorn. His mother was Sophia Donaldson Caffrey. And um, Dorn, you know, he he wanted he was he wanted to prove himself a lot of things. He wanted to show that he was brave. He wanted to show that he was a fantastic horseman. He wanted to do so many things. You know, he he true he was a strong leader of men um and and he was never really afraid to put himself in harm's way he was also the guy believe it or not who liked to paint he liked to write poetry and by all accounts he wasn't bad at either he was a warrior but he was also a romantic and this will prove to be his ultimate flaw not to give away the ending Mm -hmm. but this is what we're going to get into here a little bit In, in van dorn's early days you know he received an appointment to west point thanks to his uncle andrew a guy we all called President Andrew Jackson, of all people. I had no idea. And he did, and he, wow. he enrolled. He enrolled in that star-studded West Point class of 1842. Who's in that class? This is such personalities as William Rosecrans, Mary, George Sykes, James uh, Longstreet, D.H. Hill, Admiral Doubleday, probably captain of the baseball team. They were all <laughs> in that in that class. Van Dorn's going to graduate 52nd out of 56, just like you. So he was in the top 92% of his class. We're looking at the glass being half full. When he graduates, he's going to be appointed a, uh, a breveted second lieutenant in that 7th United States Infantry. And he's going to begin his military career in Alabama and Florida mostly, primarily. Now, when he finishes graduation, he's going to get himself married to a woman named Caroline Goldbalt in December of 1843. And a few years later, he's, we're not going to go into Tutu this history, but he's going to find himself in the Mexican War, where he did pretty well. Um, he was stationed in Brownsville, Texas, where he helped defend Fort Brown, helped actually raise the flag there. And soon later, he's going to go south of the border, and he's going to see action at Monterey, uh, Cherubusco, uh, Contreras, uh, a lot of these places, Sierra Gordon. And he's going to find himself breveted as a captain now. So he's kind of moving along and kind of fulfilling that prophecy he, had, he that he wants. Van Dorn is also a guy who enjoyed being up front. And he had the ego and the confidence to kind of do it without a doubt, with no fears. After Mexico, he fought along in the Seminole Wars, where he showed a humanitarian side. I don't know if you know this, Mary, but back then they had these things called pandemics. They did. No, I've don't
1: I do not i do not recall ever experiencing one of those before.
0: And in the Gulf of Mexico in Mississippi, they had a yellow fever pandemic going on at this time, which is ravaging the whole area. Now during this yellow fever pandemic, Van Dorn actually worked on the front line tending to people with yellow fever. And the victims, I mean, dare I say he was, you know, he was not yellow in exposing mm-hmm. himself. Uh, and it wouldn't be the first time he exposed himself, but it's a different mm-hmm. type, you know, to this type of disease but it showed his personal bravery. Soon he's going to find himself in Texas where he'll become a captain of the 2nd U.S. Cavalry and on March 3rd, 1860, uh, 1855. rather, He'll report his commander, a guy named Albert Sidney Johnson, and also as lieutenant colonel, a guy named Robert E. Lee, of all people. Mm. That's who he's re- reporting to. Now here, Van Dorn is going to be in that 2nd U.S. Cavalry. Um, he's going to fight those Comanches, and this is when he's going to get shot In the Wichita expedition, he's got a shot in the arrow, and he pulls it straight through all the way through because he doesn't want it to infect and screw himself up. So this is the type of guy he was and the risk he had. Probably lucky to survive. Think about it. Now, being a Mississippi guy, he was – when the Civil War started, Earl Van Dorn was a big states' rights guy. Um, He'll resign his commission on January thirty first, 1861, pretty much right when Mississippi secedes. And Van Dorn's a confident fellow. And he had the ego the size of your fridge. He just <laughs> did, and he started his Confederate career in the infantry in Texas. But uh, it was he was later uh, called to Virginia, where he will take over that first Confederate cavalry, and that legend of Earl Van Dorn is going to take off here. So January eighteen sixty two, uh, Van Dorn is commanding a division, and, and will be and he'll be selected to command the uh, the Trans Mississippi District. We talked about that with P Ridge. You probably don't remember, but he had to play the role. He he had to play the role of peacemaker, if you remember, between yeah. two of his subordinates, Sterling Price and Benjamin McCulloch. Oh right, because they were mean, girling it. They, they they didn't like each other too too much, right? And Dorn's personality and his arrogance, though, did did weigh on everyone. I mean, he was a pain. he just it just did. He's that guy in the, the bar who just dude, shut up. Oh, he's like, he, like Hooker. How, he's
1: like Hooker in that way, like the guy yeah, in the bar that can, won't shut up and he, gets he in probably fights. was.
0: He almost he almost uh, got into a duel with Nathan Bedford Forrest over his mouth one time. That and is a be, guy I would not want to duel with. Know. And, that, and it didn't happen. Someone told Van Dorn, you might want to step aside of this one, which he did. Um, all along, though, he had an eye for the ladies. And he had no shame con- concealing his feelings towards women. He openly flirted with, with women. And his two, his primary type was a female who could fog a mirror. That was his type. And that's what it was. It was, it was everybody, <laughs> right? So now, this is everything. <laughs> uh, don't forget, too, he's married. Now, despite being married, it is said that Van Dorn fathered three illegitimate, illegitimate children in Texas uh, with a woman named Martha Goodbread while his family waited for him in Mississippi. Boys will be boys, right? Yep. Van Dorn is, is very much also, he wanted to be looked upon on that level, that Jeb Stuart level, mm-hmm. right, of his contemporaries. And he wanted that military glory. So, But despite his bravery, he had some bumps in the road. And we talk about P. Ridge. We're going to talk just real, real quick. Arkansas, March 7, 8, 1862. He's going to basically mismanage his troops. Um, he is going to gift wrap a victory and hand it directly to the Army of the Southwest led by Judge Samuel Curtis and Franz Siegel. On yep. the artillery, remember that? Yep. um After that defeat, Van Dorn is going to message Secretary of War Judah Benjamin, and he's going to tell him, and I quote, of P. Ridge, I was not defeated. I only failed in my intentions, which sounds like something the GM of the Red Sox probably said.
1: Wasn't your intention to win?
0: Oh, well, no, there, there, the there you go. So that is such a, like, I,
1: I don't know. That sounds like a very, um, if you, <laughs> a government way to put something. Exactly. I failed in my failed in my intention. i, I my
0: intentions. have to remember That's that one. Pale. You know, you probably will. Um, he also got badly beaten the, uh, at Corinth in October of 1862 by his former classmate, William Rosecrans. And he made, where he made his own men charge a heavily fortified position, wave after wave of assaults. Um, and finally, Van Doren's going to get hauled under a court of military inquiry he'll get off again not the first time I'll say that but he was exonerated um but that stink of failure and incompetence really stuck to him like the stink of the cleveland indians playoff loss it just just never seems to go away what? right I'm
1: just saying. I'm just you have saying. to bring back such bad memories for me. Uh, I know,
0: I know. I made fun of the Red Sox. But Van Dorn did have um, his greatest moment, December 20th of 1862. This, of course, being when he raided U.S. Grant's supplies at Holly Springs. He's going to catch 1,500 prisoners. He's going to bag $1.5 million in Union supplies. He's going to destroy them. A... But for Grant, this disaster early in the Vicksburg campaign, he had that political issue of that general order number 11 going on at the same time yeah, so it was it was, uh, it was grant's good. it was u.s grant's want to get away moment was right there for the most part is this when he goes on um, the three-day
1: bender too that
0: was a little bit later on oh that's right uh, you know too. but yeah. this holly springs experience really is what got van Dorn back in the good graces again because he'd been rolling up the l's one after the other until this soon after holly springs van Dorn is going to get promoted to the commander of the department of mississippi in east louisiana and he got the pleasure of being sent by joseph of e. Johnson to join Braxton Bragg's army of Tennessee as a commander of the cavalry. So you got a Van Dorn and Braxton. What could possibly yep. go wrong, right? As cavalry commander, Van Dorn did see this gig as an opportunity to regain that image of this military hero in the South. He has his headquarters set up at a place called Martin Shears Mansion in the small town of Spring Hill, Tennessee. This town is about 40 miles South of Nashville. It's about 40 miles West of Murfreesboro. Van Dorn basically is in charge of the town. And he enjoyed the time there as a socialite and someone who spent a, a lot of time enjoying chasing those lovely ladies of Spring Hill. Mm-hmm. Here, Van Dorn was referred to by the Terror of Ugly Husbands. That's what people called the them.
1: Terror of Ugly Husbands. That's what they, oh that's my what God. they called them.
0: Okay, <laughs> there you go. But at Spring Hill, Confederate officers mingled in town. They enjoyed those nightly dances. They had luncheons. You just picture exactly what it must have yep. been like. These guys are all rock stars, right? Ben Dorn was the biggest star of them all, and he became the focus of the attention by a woman though, whose name was Jesse Helen Kysick Peters, who also dazzled. She he she basically he, she was basically in, in awe of, the, of this guy. You know, he um he had red hair cavalry commander. Um, speaking of that, I don't know if you know this, but yesterday um, today is um, National Kiss of Ginger Day. So maybe that has something to do with this too. <laughs> who knows,
1: right? I had no idea he had red hair.
0: He did, he, so he did, but he, he, but he was, he was, looked the part. Peters Jesse was half of his age, and uh, and was someone who was, according to locals, she had thick brown hair and reportedly a fine figure. Now I googled her, so you might want to google her and judge for yourself on that one. But anyway, <laughs> soon, <laughs> soon, uh, soon, Van Dorn and Peters became became close. Now they were seen riding in a ca- carriage together. And quickly became the gossip of the town. Now, even if they were single, riding in a carriage unsupervised at that time was, would have been a big deal. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, like, riding in a carriage, that's probably code for, like, right. we're dating. Well,
0: who knows? But they're both married. And everyone, they don't really know Van Dorn's background, but they certainly know Peter's background. Um, so Jesse Peters, like I just mentioned, was married to a retired doctor named George Peters who happened to be her cousin, by the way, whatever. Okay. Right. Whatever.
1: Well, it happens, but, right? I
0: don't know. It was, but, <laughs> but, but, but even for Van Dorn though, this was reckless. It was, yeah. especially since Van Dorn and George Peters knew each other kind of well, they yeah. kind of did. So the whole thing was, you know, next on Springer written all over it.
1: Well, he's not so, doing the whole Philip Barton key. Is it Barton key with Sickles? Like with the red bandana on the, like the bang barn and, <laughs>
0: but, that, but they were at least trying to be discreet this this is not now this affair here between van dorn and jesse peters uh, all these allegations you know um there's a lot of stories about this and a lot of the stories are hearsay we're going to talk about too but you can imagine the rumors dr peters he owned a property in union held nashville and due to his friendship with van dorn he was able to regularly get a pass to cross union lines to go visit his property in nashville which was being held and controlled by the federal government now while her husband was away jesse would visit van Dorn's home allegedly wearing a tight riding black outfit and a black bonnet with an ostrich flume we all know what that means we have the ostrich flume Ooh. you know what she means business right <laughs> but but when she when she arrived at his home the woman who owned the home um she you know she stops at the door and, and she goes to walk in. That the woman kind of stops Jesse Peters and says, You just can't go walking up to this guy's bedroom. This is this is 1900, this is not 2021. Yeah. It's not Goddard here, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so she Jesse Peters is going to brush right by this woman, go right up the stairs into um into Van Dorn's bedroom, where I assume they read scripture is what they did for the next and talk sorry, battle formations. Yeah. But what happened was when Dr. Peters returned. The house madam is gonna tell him of what's going on. And she's gonna quickly tell Van Dorn, who's been staying at her house, to get out, you're out of here, which she does. Now, Van Dorn's gonna send a messenger to deliver a note to Jesse at Peter's house. I mean, he's brash. he's brazen, which is gonna get intercepted by Dr. Peters. And allegedly, Peters took the message and he said, Tell your whiskey-headed master if he sets foot on my on my lawn. I'll blow my brains out where he stands. That is the best get-off-my-lawn speech wow. right there, just saying. And so, but Van Dorn wasn't going to let that bother. Him. He's going to continue to reach out to Jesse. On April 12th of 1863, Dr. Peters is going to hide outside his house after telling Jesse that he's going to be leaving for a bit. And lo and behold, who comes coming down the primrose path is Van Dorn again. He's going to show up, and Dr. Peters is going to confront both of them. And allegedly, when he burst in, they were probably playing Twister or something, but he was not happy. So basically, Dr. Peters, Jesse, and Earl Van Dorn are going to get in some big verbal fights, screaming and yelling. Uh, Van, uh, Peters is going to threaten to divorce uh, Jesse and she's laughing at him saying oh you there's no way you would that you'll never you'll never do that blah 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 somehow they settle down Earl Van Dorn leaves they come down they go back to bed they come down whatever so um and not not soon after that Dr. Peters is going to visit Van Dorn at his headquarters to get on the pass to Nashville and and this this is this is something that that maybe Peters would went there to try to get a written confession out of him for this, but who? But who knows? Okay. Either way, when Van Dorn, um, but he's going to walk in. Van Dorn's going to be sitting there, and he's going to be sitting in a chair. And Van Dorn is basically going to laugh at him. He's going to turn away, and when he turns away, Doctor Peters is going to pull out a gun and shoot him in the back of the head and kill him, blow his head off right there. Um, and most think and here's the thing, though, and this is what's interesting about this, as you study this. And that's kind of the, the general thoughts of what happened with this. Because most think Peter's killed him for violating the sanctity of his marriage. And that's, that's not one of the most theories. But there are other theories. And this is where it's interesting. There's a book that I found called Where Elephants Fought the Murder of Confederate General Earl Van Dorn by, by an author. Her name is Bridget Smith. Now, this is what she claims. According to her book, she says that Dr. Peters killed Van Dorn not for sleeping with his wife, but also he was sleeping with their 19-year-old daughter who was pregnant. Now, oh my this, God. And, and now she makes out a pretty good case for this. Um, I mean, Smith does claim that that's the reason why, but there are some doubts because there are some records who show that he didn't even have a daughter 19. He had two boys, but who the hell knows? But that, that, but these are the type of stories that are going around. There's another story that says Dr. Peters and Jesse were Union spies all along. And, and the killing of such a high-ranking Confederate general would be rewarded by the return of that property that they lost. And this has pretty much been debunked, too, for the most part. Um, and But it just goes to show a lot of the theories that flew around. But it's interesting that the Peters, they did divorce but you know what happens later? They get remarried. Yeah. Not too long after. That. They get remarried and they have a daughter. The daughter's name is Medora. And there was the rumor that the daughter was whose son, who was whose daughter, EDDs. Earl Van Dorn. Yeah. But there's some problems with that too because the dates don't quite line up. Yeah. I mean, he she had to be pregnant like a, a year and a half for that to be true. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of urban myths about him. And so he was someone who definitely had some bad decisions, no question about that. So going back to the resolution thing that we're talking about, I would think the obvious resolution with Earl Van Dorn is to stop looking for love in all the wrong places, because <laughs> I think that's probably what's going to get him in trouble. So long story, that that's that's what happened with Earl Van Dorn. But I think, um, I think if he had it to do over again, he might, looking forward to the next year, he might say, I'm going to try to use a little bit better judgment. Yeah, maybe not with the married um, ladies,
1: maybe just... Try and settle down a little bit. His story, I was just thinking this, he, I I don't know, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think in some ways he's a lot like the Dan Sickles of the Confederacy. Uh, Now, he's not a political general. Obviously, he's educated at West Point. Uh, Dan Sickles wasn't. Dan Sickles is a political general. But he's got that kind of like, I mean, Sickles loved the women and he got himself into trouble with women. As well. No, I haven't. and I don't know. There seems to be this kind of this party boy, um, aspect of the two of them. And I was just, I was kind of, as you're telling his story, I'm like, wow, this is this has some parallels in a way with Dan Sickles. Now, Dan Sickles is at the receiving end, though, of an affair, or not the receiving end. I shouldn't say he's the one that is the wife is having the affair. Right. But his life after the Civil War kind of reminds me of Earl Van Dorn.
0: Errol Van is an interesting guy because you know he's, this is a guy who wanted he wanted that lifestyle. You know, he yeah. he's like the he's like the musician who wants to be famous and live the rock star lifestyle yeah. was what which was what he did. He had, you know, you can you can talk about Corinth, you can talk about P. Ridge, you can talk about a lot of the things he did, but you can't deny what he did at Holly Springs because that was no. his high moment, no question about it. Yeah. But he took that high moment, parlayed into a better position where he took advantage and his vice that he could not control. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and that he's by no means—he's not the only guy with this issue. Oh no, but he's one that he's one that it's a sexy story because of how it all played out. The fact that he was actually killed by it, yeah. and as we said, there's a lot of rumors of why it happened. The only thing you know for a fact is is that George Peters did kill Earl Van Dorn, and the reality is it had to do with his wife. But this—these are all the stories. There's of a story of on. possibly
1: he could have been sleeping with the daughter as well. But then, you know, I've I've heard stories. i have read stories too, where I think it was around the time of i don't know if it was around time of battle franklin or something she pops up again and like men are staying at her house and stuff and apparently she was like sleeping with some of them
0: who knows who knows how it is but she um she definitely she definitely got herself around a little bit but they did get remarried um and they both kind of drifted off into history at the end but um but who who knows he's an interesting guy but i I would say if he had it to do over again he might have um he might have shown a little more discretion maybe uh Maybe he said no once in a while to yep. himself, but that's, that's the thing. So what do you got? What's, what's um, your story? Well,
1: speaking of rock stars, um, I'm going to go with one of the, probably he's the guy who's considered, I can kind of the first celebrity general, um, William Sherman. Cause after the war, he's very much like a celebrity going to, you know, the opera and plays and all that. But, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about Sherman. So Sherman just quickly, I mean, we talked about him a lot on this podcast. He is born in 1820, in ohio passes away february 14th 1891 in new york city when he's 16 years old he's going to attend west point um and he's roommates with george henry thomas he's also there at the same time as general rosecrans rosecrans would describe sherman as one of the brightest and most popular fellows so sherman is quite popular at west point now in his memoirs, sherman does write you know yeah I was there and you know what? I could have done a lot better had I, you know, shined my buttons and kind of not been such a jackass at time. Uh,
0: by the way, again, another ginger. Another yeah, exactly. Yes. Them.
1: Oh my God. There is a definite pattern here with the gingers. <laughs> that was unintentional actually. <laughs> it was. Yeah. it's totally yeah. unintentional. Um, right. But he, he says, you know, he, he basically implies like, oh, I, I could have done better at West Point had I, you know, actually applied myself a little bit more, but he actually, he does graduate pretty high in his class. After West Point, he's going to be in Florida, um, involved in the Seminole Wars. He's going to be out in California. He's not involved in the Mexican War at all because he's in California at the time. And that's something um, I think if you read his memoirs, I think it's something he kind of regrets. Not being a part of that because Grant was part of it. Obviously, James Longstreet, all those guys are down there and he's like stuck out in California. Um, So he ends up leaving the army and he's like he he's a lot like Grant when he leaves the army you know, he's a failed banker. He's a failed lawyer. He, he can't seem to function outside of being in the army. He needs that discipline. And he realizes that when he meets up with, um, it's when he's a lawyer um, and he's at, I think it's his brother's firm or something out in, um, it would be like kind of the prairies and stuff. And he meets up with one of his own army buddies and he realizes like, oh shit, I miss this lifestyle. Um, so 1859, he becomes seminary, Um, He becomes superintendent of the Louisiana um, State Seminary, which is later going to be Louisiana State University. Go Tigers. But. With an
0: X. Yes.
1: Secession happens. And he leaves. But not before telling his good friend, um, who's also there, basically says, like, you want to make war against us in the North? Good luck. Because it's going to be a long, drawn-out affair, but we're going to win in the end. Um, I basically summed up, you know, in one one or two sentences what he says in three paragraphs it's actually quite a brilliant speech he gives to his friend well done done. um anyway so he's going to be a colonel in the 13th u.s infantry at bull run he ends up getting moved to the department of the cumberland under robert anderson who as we know was at uh fort sumter he's the commanding officer there um, and he ends up, Sherman ends up having a breakdown and he has to leave the army for a while. It gets pretty serious. Some, some of his um, friends and even his wife was, were really afraid that he was going to commit suicide. It, it gets really bad because of how the press treats him, like the press is mm-hmm. that he's gone insane. And I think this kind of begins Sherman's hate relationship with the press. Like Sherman does not like the media at all. I think he was um, – he said something along the lines of like, if we killed all the reporters, we'd be getting reports from hell by noon. You know, if You report, report – you I, know, killed them at 9 a.m. Bill Belichick,
0: Bill Belichick also said that.
1: Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> I think Sherman said so I think it's Sherman who said it too. But anyway, he, he doesn't like the media at all, and I, I think this breakdown factors into it. But. He gets, he rejoins the army, gets reinstated, and March 1st, 1862, he's going to be assigned to be under the command of General Grant, which is exactly what he wanted. The two of them are very good friends. And there's that, you know, that, that famous quote from Sherman, um, you know, I stood by Grant when he was drunk and he stood by me when, when I was crazy. And so anyway, he's going to join the Army of West Tennessee as commander of the 5th Division, and that's where our story starts with what I'm going to be talking about regarding Sherman, and it's at the Battle of Shiloh. Shiloh. They're, they're at Pittsburgh Landing. Sherman's in the area of Shiloh Church. That's where they're camped. And things have been pretty quiet. There's been some squirmishing going on, some fighting. They know that they know the Confederates are in the area. They don't know how many. They don't know, you know, what's going to happen and all that. But that's where the problem begins is they, they don't know. And I think they kind of start making assumptions that maybe nothing is going to happen. Here's what happens. April 5th, there's rumors starting to circulate in the federal camp that the confederate general albert Sidney johnson is planning to launch a surprise attack many union troops just laughed it off they're like ah no no they're not they're not here because it's partly because sherman is telling them oh they're they're in corinth they're, they're not here so captain wb mason of the 77th ohio suggests to sergeant cj eagler and private samuel tracy that they walk beyond the picket line just to see what's going on. A quarter mile beyond the picket line, they could see a strong force of Confederate infantry and artillery. Eagler reports this to um, Major D.B. Fearing, who said it would go to Sherman at once. And Sherman finds out, and he's furious. He gets angry, and he orders Sergeant Eagler to be placed under arrest for spreading false information. But Mason and his commanding officer, Mason, ends up protecting him from that. So this is the first instance where Sherman is getting word that maybe it's a lot more than uh-huh. what we think, and maybe they they will be attacking us soon. Uh, Colonel Hildebrand goes to find out what exactly is going on. Mason again explains to him what he, what he has seen. The Confederate cavalry is in the distance. Um, there was also a lot of rabbits and squirrels running around, which was very much very telling of a large-scale movement meaning that soldiers were were in the area if you can see the animals leaving the area then odds are you know there's humans headed towards us that's um you don't want to mess you don't want
0: to mess with the squirrel well <laughs>
1: no, that's what happened at Tashaun. you don't want to mess with that's them, what happened at me. chancersville the first thing that von gilsa saw was a bunch of animals running out of the woods I know, like, oh, I know that No, that's not normal you know
0: it, it was animals then it was then it was howard and then it was von gilsa <laughs> and <laughs> and was okay i'm sorry
1: um, I'm trying, you anyway, so and hildebrand also saw the confederates that there's their shiny musket barrels as well And he goes back to Shiloh Church to tell Sherman, but again, Sherman does not believe him. So noon on April the 5th, there are some Confederates that exchange fire with some of the 75th Ohio, and the Rebs ride away pretty quickly from that. Um, But the most well-known story of the Confederates being closer than what Sherman thinks at Shiloh um, involves a man by the name of Colonel Jesse Appler of the 53rd Ohio. He, some re- he notices some rebel cavalry about half a mile away from where he is camped. He dispatched some of his men to go to them. They're unable to catch them, but they pursue until they fi- they, they're fired upon by the rebels. Um, and these are actually General Hardy's pickets. So these are some of actually, they, and who's under General Hardy? I think it's Patrick Claiborne. So these are some of Claiborne's guys. Um, Appler sends Lieutenant J.W. Fulton to tell Sherman, and Sherman's reply Tell Colonel Appler to take his damned regiment back to Ohio. There's no force of the enemy nearer than Corinth. Again, he's kind of brushing it off. You know, well, not really brushing it off. He's basically saying there's nobody here. They're not here. Um, so then Grant does send a message. Grant is also gets involved in this, and he's sending a message to Buell telling him the Confederates are in Corinth, but he still needs Buell to get towards Shiloh just in case, Right. Um, Sherman tells Grant, All is quiet along my lines now. The enemy has cavalry in our front, and I think there are two regiments of infantry and one battery of artillery about two miles out. So he's kinda of guesstimating, but from what, you know, the men, including Appler, have told him, there has gotta be a lot more there. Um Sherman also felt that nothing would happen but picket firing. I will not be drawn out of um, I will not be drawn out far unless with certainty of advantage, and I do not apprehend anything like an attack on our position. And he's saying this a day before the Battle of Shiloh. Um, Colonel William H. Graves of the 12th Michigan could hear movements in the distance, but Prentice tells him it's nothing. There's no they're They're not there. They're just pickets, right? Now, the other thing that the Federals are in possession of is prisoners from the 1st Alabama. They told the Union that their army would be destroyed and the Rebs were about to strike. And one wounded Alabamian told Hildebrand that the Union army was going to be attacked in less than 12 hours. And Hildebrand goes to see Sherman, and Sherman laughs it off. And Sherman, in his memoirs, he doesn't really make mention of these reports of the rebels. Now, in some of the letters, he kind of he'll say, "Oh, we think there's cavalry in the area, or whatever." But in his, you know, in the memoirs when he's talking about Shiloh, he just basically says the fifth is pretty quiet. Um, he just says, "From April 1st, we were um, conscious that the rebel cavalry was in our front, and they were getting bolder and more saucy." He uses the word "saucy" a lot.
0: You can't beat that <laughs> I word. Think we need That's to word. word
1: back. Um, yeah. April 5th. This is the day where he's getting all the reports there's two or three different reports he gets he says april 5th passed without any unusual event um sherman acted upon now sherman was acting upon believing he was the invading army therefore he didn't feel the need to fortify against an attack he had no orders to do so and he be- he also believed it would have made the men too timid so when i was research- researching this that got me thinking like well, so what could he have done? So Appler goes to him, and these other guys go to him, and he's like, well, what are we going to do? I guess it would have given him time to fortify, but he just kind of shrugs it off. Um, he also says on April 5th to Grant, I have no doubt that nothing will occur today than some picket firing. The enemy is saucy, but we will not press our pickets far. And again, I do not apprehend anything like an attack on our position. Um, flash forward to April the 6th, the morning. And they start to hear firing. And Sherman knows something is going on. So he and his staff um, have just finished breakfast. And that's when he receives word, too. In addition to hearing stuff, received word the Confederates are on the march. So he rides out to investigate. And Sherman's staff member, Thomas D. Holliday, is killed right in front of him. Much the same way that garage is killed next to Rosecrans <clears throat> at the Battle Battlestones River. Um, and the fire came from in front of none other than Appler's camp. The guy that had went and reported to Sherman that there was definitely rebels there. And they were definitely a lot closer than Corinth. Um, Sherman ends up getting shot in the hand. And that's when he said, my God, we are attacked. And that's when he realized, you know, shit, they're here. You know, they're a lot closer than what we thought. Um, The aftermath of Shiloh um, as we all know, is still to this day debated. It's it's very confusing. There's still conflicting reports, um, as to exactly what happened. Like, were they surprised? My opinion in doing this research, reading a little more. Yeah. Grant and Sherman were definitely surprised by the rebels. Like, um, Sherman is, you know, I don't know if the right word is ignore, but he's really brushing off what his subordinates are telling him. Um, It was said of Shiloh that probably no single battle of the war gave rise to such wild and damaging reports. It was publicly asserted at the North that our army was completely taken by surprise. There were lots of rumors, and that's what Sherman had to say about it. Like I said, it's still debated if the Union was caught off guard. Grant said, "As as to the talk of surprise here, nothing could be more false. If the enemy had sent word when and how they would attack, we could not have been more prepared. Well, first of all, Grant, the enemy is not going to tell you (laughs) when they're going to attack. Albert Sidney Johnson is not going to be like, I'm going to attack you here just to let you know, right? Um, I I think this is Grant's way. uh, And this is, you know, Grant, amazing general, and and Sherman is very talented, too. But they were definitely caught off guard here. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sherman said to his brother, John, we knew the enemy was in our front, but in what form we could not tell. And I was always ready for an attack. But then two weeks later, he writes to John and says, I confess, I did not think Beauregard would abandon his railroad to attack at our base. Um, General Lew Wallace um, saves the Union Army at Monocacy. Um, he said the, um, and well, he saves the country too. He said the Army was definitely taken by surprise. And now some would say Lou is saying that because of how Grant threw him under the bus. But Grant does throw him under the bus in this and I think it's to kind of deflect away from the mistake that that Sherman made in not being prepared for the morning of April the 6th when he is when he is attacked the lower ranks as well that's the interesting thing about looking at Shiloh is the lower ranks as well they all say we were caught by surprise Um, William H. Chamberlain of the 81st Ohio was says that they were entirely ignorant of the presence of the enemy until the firing began and another uh, lieutenant said surprise was never more complete so getting back to the resolution um, it's basically if you get enough reports pay attention check it out and make sure so that you don't get caught by surprise again but I think in this case Sherman did learn because I don't think he was ever caught off guard like this again like um, and I mean I've studied shiloh before but really studying this this was so interesting um to see you know how grant and sherman reacted to this yeah Um, and just how they kind of like sherman is brushing off all these reports of that they're there they're right there and the interesting part is is like when the shots happen it's right by appler's camp Imagine being Appler well, like instant <laughs> karma right oh my there. God. You know. I, I feel bad for Appler and all this as well. Um mm-hmm. but that's mine. It's Sherman about Shiloh. I definitely want to look at it a lot more. Now I, I find this so fascinating. Um, just all these different reports that are coming in and yeah. Sherman is just like, Nope, they're not there. And whether he's doing it to keep morale high or because he honest to God does not believe they're there. Or if he does, he Mary. thinks they're they're
0: and in a small force, well, he learned a valuable lesson. He probably forgot that lesson at Chickasaw, but for the most oh, part, oh, yes, yeah,
1: he, Chickasaw. Did he? Because he did get caught off guard again, but but, like, but
0: he did, yeah. he, he did learn, he did learn his lessons. so uh, that's a good one. So maybe if that's the case for him, that would definitely be the case. So mm-hmm. I got one more for you, Mary. Yep, and this is, of course, is the person I want to talk to next is about Ellis Spear. Everybody knows Ellis Spear, he's the disgruntled the temp, one of the movies, one of the characters, the movie Gettysburg, was played by Donald Logue. He was a captain of Company G, in the 20th Maine is portrayed, um, as you said, that, that disgruntled office employee to his boss, Joshua right. Chamberlain. Now, um, we'll talk about a lot of the speculation between these two. But real quick, uh, Spears, he was, Spears was born on October 15th of 1834 in the tiny town of Warren, Maine, a town right between Portland and Bangor. Um, it was named after Joseph Warren, the hero of Bunker Hill. Mary, we were there a few weeks ago. Great That's tavern. That's the town was named after. Uh, Warren, uh, Maine was a very small town back then, about 2,000 people. It's a small town today of about 5,000 people, so some things don't change. It's pretty much the same. Oh, fun fact though, Mary, the town of Warren, you know its claim to fame is in the United States? In 1853, they elected a woman. Her name was Olive Rose to the Registrar of Deeds, and she was the first woman in U.S. history to ever be elected to U.S. office. Very so yeah, there you go, Warren, Maine, going to England. Now, Spear is is pretty much best known um, for his post-war feud, quotation fingers, with Joshua Chamberlain. Now, the story is interesting in its own right uh, for Spear. Now, Spear was a graduate of Bowdoin College in the class of 1858. He was not a a classmate of Chamberlain, although he was a student at one point. And when the Civil War began, Spear was studying for the bar exam. He was also teaching at a small school in the town of Wiscasset, Maine, not far away. In the fall of 1862, Abraham Lincoln... The guy with the hat we talk about from time to time. Um, he's going to ask the country for an additional three hundred thousand volunteers to put down the rebellion. And Spear not only signed up, but like Rufus Dawes, you know, he offered to raise an entire company from West Cassette, as well as his hometown of Warren. Now he had them sign in eighty-seven guys, and they were assigned to Company G of the twentieth Maine. And before Gettysburg, um, you know, he'll he'll ultimately become a temporary major of that regiment. He's going to kind of move along. Now, despite becoming the commander of the 20th Maine and later a brigade commander right up until Appomattox, Spears' most famous day is without a doubt on July 2nd, 1863, on that hillside just west of Tawny Town Road over there in Gettysburg of course, known today as Little Round Top. Mm-hmm. Now, the story of Little Round Top is, you know, it's, you know, real quick, it's, it's, it's a fixture in American history, you know, on the battle second day, um, in my opinion, the most decisive day of that battle, William C. Oates' 15th Alabama, they're going to be attacking that Union left flank that was anchored on Little Round Top It was held by Joshua Chamberlain's 20th Maine. The narrative, of course, is that Oates' is going to continue to try to flank the Chamberlain uh, the Chamberlain's going to be low on ammunition and he's going to order his men to fix bayonets and swing down the slope on the hill forcing the alabamans to retreat to save the union flank on the second of july who knows if there was music playing as they were running I'm like who who knows but but a few days after the battle though uh, this is on july 6th 1863 you know chamberlain's going to write to his first lieutenant a guy named george herondine he's in the fifth corps he's the acting adjutant a general and he's going to say that we maintain the defense no longer. At last, desperate resort, I ordered a bayonet charge, and the men dashed forward with a shout to sweep away the attacking Confederates. Now, this is the, where the legend of Ch- Chamberlain ordering the bayonet charge begins. The word "charge" is important because this is what's going to be refuted. Now, Chamberlain is going to re- uh, is basically going to repeat is going to repeat the same story to his wife Fanny. He's going to tell her. We not only held our ground, but charged on the rebels. And this was written um, the day after the battle, on the Fourth of July, probably during the fireworks show. <laughs> but after the war ended, in, in, the, in the conversations began. They began about who actually did what. Many, including you know, including Chamberlain, would write their own stories about this, often embellishing their roles, which was common, more common than uncommon at the time. I and mean, we talk about this a million times in the memoirs. Chamberlain was a brilliant writer. Who loved to talk about glory, not only for himself but also for his 20th Maine, as well as the Union Army in general. Now he had a very chivalrous attitude towards war, and, and you know more than most. And for a person like Ellis Spear, the problem was that Spear didn't see glory; he saw misery out of it, and he did. And that was a big issue for them. Now, after the war, Ellis Spear's diary was published by his grandson named Abbott Speer. Now this this is later on now in a book that came out called The Civil War Recollections of General Ellis Spear. Now, as you can imagine, the Battle of Gettysburg is going to take a lot of it. That's going to be his big day. Ellis Spear's entry on July 2nd explains, this is the date of the battle now. This is what's this is according to Spear on that day. We fought at close quarters for more than two hours. They flanked us and hurt us severely. Our men fell rapidly at last we charged them and took many prisoners so you can see the difference he's talking about the fact that he saw a lot of bloody crap going on here Mm -hmm. he wasn't talking about bravery and and all that other stuff spear was a guy who actually hated war he hated the glorification of it he hated everything he was he saw war as work of the job of saving the union and he cared very 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 much for his men he would help nurse his men back to health when they were injured he would personally find and bury some of the dead of his own men that's how he was he actually married a woman named sarah her name was sarah foster who was the widow of a guy named samuel keen also from maine he was a soldier who died in his arms at the battle of petersburg in 1864 oh. And he ends up marrying the ex. I don't know how that goes. But but after the war, and contrary to what a lot of people think, Spear and Chamberlain, they actually maintained a good friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people think they hated each other. They, they really did. I was
1: of, the, I was of that impression. Right? I didn't think they liked now, each other at all.
0: And this is right up until Chamberlain died in 1914, right around there. But the interpretations of the war kind of strain their friendship off and on throughout. It's like having two good friends and they... There's something happens between the two. They, they don't want to bring it up. When they do, they argue about it. But they're mm-hmm. still friends. That's kind of how it was. They weren't these enemies of, of each other. They, they were actually quite close right into the very end. And the crux of the difference was at their greatest moment for probably each of them, was, which is Little Round Top at Gettysburg. Spear, being a soldier, soldier, didn't share Chamberlain's vision of that story, which is told in Killer Angels and came later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Spear had the belief that the charge... That Chamberlain wrote about that he ordered the bayonet charge was actually ordered not by Colonel Chamberlain, but by a guy in the first, he was a first lieutenant uh, named Holman Melcher from Company F. And the story is also corroborated by a private named Theodore Garish. Now, Garish admittedly took the story from a second hand because he wasn't there. He was in the hospital in Philadelphia, but he had the story from somebody and he passed it on. And it just, who knows, but that's kind of how it goes. The story that goes, it's just a battle ebbed and flowed, and there was a lull between these endless charges of these Alabamians, right? While the 20th man is resetting their lines, they noticed that some of the wounded of the 20th were kind of lying in no man's land. Mm-hmm. As the battle was going on, they got two boxers. As you're fighting, one of them slowly starts to move back. They realized that because they were moving back, their injured were not not behind their lines anymore. They were in front of their lines, in between. So, according to you know, so basically, they wanted to move the lines up to protect these guys again. So, according to Spear, he wrote, "The line on the left of the colors pulled back a few feet, leaving wounded lying in front of the line. Someone proposed advancing to a point beyond the wounded men, moving you know, move the line up a little bit, so these guys aren't in front of the lines anymore." OK, the man who moved who moved these men to the left uh, to forward to, to move forward, these protect, protect these guys was Melcher. Now, Garrish, that private we mentioned before, wasn't there. He um, he's going to write in his memoirs that he was obviously told with a cheer and a flash of Melcher's sword that sent an inspiration along the line. Full 10 paces to the front. He sprang yelling, come on, boys. And again, the color guard saw them moving, and they all followed him. And once the other men saw the flag going down the hill, they all went, and they all charged. That's the story that Spear tells. It isn't Chamberlain rotating like a door, and the, just like yeah. the movie says. The whole story was they saw the flags going, and they all started running after him. And that's how, how the charge went. Now, Chamberlain did order bayonets. He did order to fix bayonets, but no one heard him say, charge. He says he ordered it. And this is that fog of war. And don't forget, it's loud, and stuff going on. and But there are problems with the story, too, because every story's got problems. The story would assume Melcher was on the left. But yeah. even Melcher admits he was in the middle because he was standing right near Chamberlain. If he was in the middle and he went forward, the line would have broken apart. So that story's even questionable. But that's, that's what Speer swears. That's what he says. Chamberlain himself, he's going to admit, he's going to pretty much admit that. And he's going to say that, and he's going to give Melcher, Chamberlain, his credit for basically saving a lot and saving his own life. Do you remember that scene in the movie Gettysburg when he goes running down the hill and the guy pulls a gun on him and he clicks? That scene's actually true. It's embellished a little bit. Chamberlain Chamberlain writes about this this story. He writes, Melcher came dashing in up to my side. Now, this is actually Chamberlain's going down the Mm. hill. Melcher's Mm -hmm. going to run up to him and stand next to him. I was in front of the commanding officer of rebels, Lieutenant Robert Wicker from the 15th, Alabama. He fired one shot at me and I raised my saber when he, uh, I raised, I raised my saber when he handed me his sword and pistol and surrendered. The gun didn't jam. He just fired, but he had Melcher next to him. So he knew he couldn't kill both of them. So he decided to surrender that movies. That seems sort of true, yeah. but that was because of Melcher. Now, nonetheless, years later in 1913, Speer is going to publish an account of the Battle of Little Round Top, crediting Company F in Holman Melcher specifically with starting the actual charge. Speer never, never even mentioned in his battle account Joshua Chamberlain, not even by not a name. They didn't even mention him. Now, according to Speer, it was Melcher who suggested the movement forward to protect those wounded men, and he's going to write in his diary proposing that he said to move the men forward. They took it as a charge, and they all acted accordingly. That's roughly what kind of, you can kind of see how that probably would have happened. But remember, these these stories, like I said before, were all part of this heat of battle in real time. And, and these stories are only in the eye of the beholder. Spear, of that very moment, the actual battle. He writes in his memoir, I remember that there was noise so loud that the shouted orders could be scarcely heard, that bullets hissed all about, splinters flew from the trees and men were dropping every second two things no glory and two he couldn't hear shit chamberlain could have yelled we're all going to the dairy queen he wouldn't have heard it. so you never know <laughs> so, so you never know if chamberlain did yeah but he doesn't hear it and so in his memory is what he sees is what he saw yeah. much much of this of this uh, spear chamberlain controversy is really more contrived in modern day then back then, because even the even in his diary mm-hmm. that he writes that appeared after the battle, what does Spear say? Colonel Chamberlain handled the regiment in splendid manner. No officer could be cooler and more skillful. He was personally complimented by brigade, division, and corps commanders. He might have even gone to look for Buster. We don't know, but he. But all these stories that he talked <laughs> about are true from from this. So for Spear, it's clear, and I don't mean to rhyme. That the story of little round pop in Chamberlain has changed over time. There's no question it has in the story that's true is the one you want to believe at the time. And that's yep. pretty much the truth. So, as a resolution goes for him, I would say that Ellis Spear would probably want to make sure that all of his stories basically stay straight, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what makes history great, what really makes it great, is how it could be interpreted. Even by two men on opposing views of the same battle, of what actually happened when both of their views change in time? Yeah, and that's kind of what's cool about it is you will never know exactly what happened. The Never Chamberlain people are probably not gonna not gonna like the um the, 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 the fact that that El Spear gives him credit, and yeah. Never Spear people aren't gonna sit there and say that. Yeah, but you can you can sort of see how it went. The end of the day, Little Round Top is, it, it is a big big part of American yeah. history. But how much it depends on who tells the story, and that's what's great about this. So I think Old Ellison probably um, have a he has two different versions of the same story yeah. based on the time of his life, and um, I think that's probably what it was. I think the reality, my own personal opinion, is Spears' version is correct, and he wanted to he wanted to take care of the old man towards the end of his life yep. in 1913, yeah, um, and corroborate a lot of the stuff. But he did stay friendly with them. He did. Yeah. He was, he well, wasn't I think like, that's the case alert. for a lot.
1: Of, you know, even the ones that were fought on opposing sides, you know, there was probably, you know, you look at somebody like a Barlow, or like, you know, Barlow, who is friend, I think friends with John Brown Gordon. I mean, they probably didn't talk about, um, you know, certain things, especially Gordon being involved in the KKK, right? Probably cause Barlow was, in, because Barlow...
0: That's usually a bar conversation. No, no. Barlow was, you know, no.
1: not, probably not having that and. I'm, I'm sure Lou Wallace wasn't either. He was also friends with with Gordon. The the one I'm thing about Spears' story that um I, don't know, just, I thought of this is you know Spear, um, not talking about uh, Chamberlain in his battle report, reminds me a lot of Black Jack Logan not mentioning Oliver Otis Howard in his battle report of Ezra Church. There is some there was definitely and that's, you know that goes back to the feeling I think you know, sometimes you just, you get in that moment of how you feel about something. And I wonder if Spear was just angry about something towards Chamberlain. He's like, F him, I'm not going to put him in my battle report, because I'm sure that was Blackjack's line of thinking um, at the time of Ezra Church, because Blackjack had just been, you know, found out, oh, you're not going to command Army of the Tennessee. We're going to give it to right. Oliver Otis Howard instead. And uh, he left Howard out of the battlefield report. I think just because emotions were running high, right? Oh no, it's a question. You know, and once you so, calm down from that, you might see the story differently.
0: How about this? How about some impromptu, real quick, one liners? All right. Say a name and tell me what his resolution is going to be. Okay. Well I actually With have... the, without the without the whole story. Just just okay, the name yeah. and the resolution. It's okay. Th-
1: this is um so my first one obviously is going to be Howard. Uh, like Sherman, listen to your subordinates specifically, Von Gilsa at Chancellorsville.
0: Okay, okay. Henry Kid Douglas, Lost Order One Ninety One. Hold on to your damn paperwork. Don't lose it. <laughs> Get a better pocket. Don't lose your paperwork. That's one. Uh, my next. You
1: my next one is is two. Sheridan and Warren. Check your ego
0: at the door. Good one. Good one. <laughs> James Longstreet, Gettysburg countercharge. Ask for directions. Just ask for them. Don't be a guy. Ask for directions. <laughs> uh, Burnside,
1: no gambling because you might owe AP Hill money and he might just use that as one of three things to spitefully march to Antietam and win the battle for the Confederates.
0: Very good. Very good. The 51st, 51st Pennsylvania, 51st New York at Antietam. These are the stories of the men who were charged by... Um, by the ninth Corps by Edward Ferrero to take that bridge if you take that bridge I will give you your whiskey back and you know what they did they did it resolution don't always do everything for alcohol it can get you in a lot of trouble <laughs> just say no oh God, just say no God. okay don't don't always make it about the alcohol but 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 thanks for your service but but next time be a little more
1: careful um it's my next one zollicoffer at Mill Springs get your eyes checked
0: very good, very good. one more for me Samuel Samuel Mudd don't always answer the door late at night. Just stay in bed. <laughs> God. Just stay in bed. Nothing good happens at one o'clock in the morning. Don't answer the door when it knocks. Just stay in there's, bed. There's stay in bed.
1: There's actually a lot. You know the the one one of the ones that I did think about. You go all go out all day with these. Oh yeah. yeah. The, one of the ones that I did think about, and I I actually did research into it, only to find out that you know what? No. How I went into it is not how I feel about it at the end. And it was actually mm-hmm. Beauregard. At Shiloh um, and the whole not attacking at night and um, I do side with him on that after, well after reading about what you know what he had at the information he had at the time I understand why he pulled back and then I read more about how Davis didn't like him and Davis was kind of this cheerleader behind Beauregard sucks he did wrong at, at Shiloh um, and yeah, it, I mean, Beauregard sending that telegram saying we won was not, um, probably not a good idea, but he was acting on what he knew at the time. I think,
0: um, he, he probably did.
1: and he was one that, that I did think about. Um, and one final one would be brag, be nicer to your subordinates so that they don't make a big petition against you.
0: Very right, Pretty good idea. Pretty good idea. You know, this is, you you can go with these for a while oh yeah jubel i think we, we had some really jubel, good jubilee cedar creek don't cut your chickens for their hatched yeah you know play it all the way through long you the same street thing um, actually
1: Guard. long street regarding the direction thing he kind of needed that going to knoxville too and then he ends up blaming breckenridge for giving him a bad map
0: always blows my mind how these guys found their places from point a to point b well, it, sherman it just, got
1: I, lost going to missionary ridge and he was like sherman is the last guy i would expect to get lost but he ends up on Billy Goat Hill, and then he blames Baldy Smith for giving him a bad map.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the big question for you, Mary, is what is your resolution?
1: I don't make New Year's resolutions. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, I don't,
0: I don't. Okay, that's probably a good thing to do. You can never be disappointed with that. Exactly. Anyway, so so what's coming up for us? I think we can put this to bed for now and get ready uh, for the next one. So what's coming down the road so for us?
1: So our next episode is going to be, episode 99, Is going we are going to be talking about General William Rosecrans finally which i've been wanting to talk about him for a while um and then our episode 100 we are going to be joined by alexander rose to talk about um the confederate spies in liverpool which is based around his book the lion and the fox which just came out uh i think it was in november december of 2022 so it hasn't been published for very long so if y'all oh, can just check that out. book out, um, he's the one that's going to be on our next book club meeting. Um, he's was kind of just a, a you know, just an addition at random. So we're actually going to be doing six books this year. Um, he's going to be our second one for 2023, and we will be having our book club meeting for that, as we said at the beginning of this episode, on February the 22nd at six o'clock mm-hmm. Eastern via Zoom.
0: Guys, not gonna lie to you, read that book. It is so it's cool. Really good. If if you like if you like the espionage, if you like Navy. If you like some of the stuff that was going on, the, the cloak and dagger stuff going on in England and Liverpool, yeah. um, while the Confederates trying to build a Navy and, and try to break the like the blockade, the blockade. it is so cool. And when, having him on is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so definitely do it. So, um, so off we go. So we'll look forward to that. We have our live on Sunday, Mary. Yes, live stream, on Sunday. Yes, live stream okay. on Sunday
1: at 10 o'clock Eastern. Via, we're on YouTube now instead of Facebook. So check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe to us on YouTube. We post our episodes on there and they're full of bloopers <laughs> as well. Cause we just put the video right on there, but that's where we're also doing our live streams as well.
0: Definitely. All right. Well, if you Mary, have a happy new year, everybody out there have a happy and safe new year um hopefully you guys are staying warm you're staying dry and uh we will uh we will go on to the next one mary so as usual as always say many many times the pleasure is always yours and for everybody out there enjoy the rest of your weekend we have one day to go to the weekend we're, so close, mary.
1: We so, are, we're close. so close so
0: we're gonna get there we're gonna make it we're gonna get there so everyone thanks for joining us earlier tonight on our book club um thanks again um So Dr. Terry offered, this is going to drop a few days later, but uh, we have right in the high of that. That was a great meeting today. And we have finished up by talking about these resolutions. So we will see you down the road. Mary, we will talk to you soon. Guys, have a great weekend. We will see you on the other side. See you guys later. Peace out. See you guys later.